started here, you are at the mine, how selfishness robs us of joy. So if that's where you don't want to be, you can go somewhere else. No judgment. That's fine. Just got to make sure you're in the right room. But we're going to start off, since we're talking about selfishness and selflessness, by giving away some stuff. And uh, in the last session, I tried to do it by closest birthdays and realized that I can't do math that quickly, which is sad. But uh, we're going to do something different this time. I'm going to yell out random majors, and she's going to be the judge of the first person who raises their hand. If that's their major, you get a book. Here we go. Psychology. Gusta. I got it. But so so speedy. Uh, history. I was a history major, not a one. That's fine. Uh, business. Oh, that's got you. Mackenzie, congratulations. Um, what are some other? Uh, n- nursing. Oh, we got another one. That was very quick. And engineering. Oh, oh, oh wow. This row right. really, really there got, go. got right, a lot well in this done. row that here. Was, that was speedy. That was much easier to do. Oh, so great. So feel free to uh, enjoy that book and maybe even pass it along if you find it helpful. So today we're going to be talking about selfishness. When I was a sophomore in college, I co-led a Bible study with a friend. And six girls came to this Bible study And one of them was very obviously not a Christian. She had some really loud and really apparent sin behaviors. And when it came time for my friend and I to talk about who we were going to follow up with from this Bible study for discipleship, I said that I would follow up with this girl. And I wanted to be seen as selfless, as the the leader who would help this girl out of her troubles if she actually became a Christian. But really, I wanted to make myself look good. I wanted to make myself be seen as the person who had helped lead her to Jesus. And I left my friend to follow up with the other five girls in the process. And so I wanted to be seen as selfless, but really, I was being selfish. And I'm guessing many of you are here because you feel that tension too. You want to be seen as selfless. Maybe you even have good intentions, But in reality, you often end up just feeling selfish. And so what is selfishness? We're going to keep this very simple if you want to write this down. This is how we're going to define selfishness. Selfishness is simply to put myself first. That's all it is. Put myself first. And selfishness is tricky in our culture because on the one hand, phrases like you do you and treat yourself and I need to look out for number one are all over the place. And yet, when we consider movies and TV or any real life inspiring story, the heroes of those stories are not the people that put themselves first. The heroes of the stories are the people that look out for others, that protect the weak, that uplift the vulnerable. And so we see that these two narratives exist simultaneously in our culture, selfishness and selflessness. But we can't do both simultaneously. We recognize selflessness as noble, but often our own personal focus is inward. And when we do that, we don't even realize how the pursuit of self-interest actually robs us of joy. So today, we're going to look at some of the root desires behind selfishness. Carolyn's going to walk us through some examples of selfish desires in Scripture 
talk about what that looks like in our own lives, and then consider the countercultural solution to selfishness. So Carolyn, let's walk us through two selfish desires. Yeah, as Sarah has shared, we see both selfishness and selflessness playing out in our culture, and we can't do both. And we want to be those elect exiles who are recognized for following Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, I think we have a desire. We want to be recognized as those who live differently. We want to live selflessly. But I'm often actually pretty blind to my own selfishness. I have been really blind to my own selfishness until I read God's word. I think it reveals those selfish desires in my heart. Jesus does a really good job actually drawing out some selfish desires of people in the Bible. So we're going to look at God's word today in Mark 10. It's on page 46 of your packet. If you're not there already, we're going to be page 46 and page 47. Um, And as we look at this passage, Jesus responds to a few selfish me-first people. And the passage has much to teach us about Jesus and his kingdom. But I think we'll also learn a lot about selfishness and selflessness as we read As we consider this passage in Mark, we're going to see how there's a rich man and his selfish desire is for his treasure of his material possessions. Then we'll consider James and John and their selfish desire. And finally, we'll look at Jesus, the only truly selfless one who enables us to give up our selfish desires. So let me pray and then we'll read the passage. Father God, we come before you uh, admitting that we are selfish, but we long to be like Christ. We long to be selfless. I pray that you would make much of Jesus today as we read your word and as we talk about this topic together. Would you help us to do so? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Put it in your packet there. We're going to skip one section, but you'll, I'll try and make that clear as we go along. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're going to skip that paragraph and jump down to 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and asked and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is a lot here and quite a few characters. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and his 12 disciples are following him when this rich man comes up and asks him a question. Then later, two two disciples, James and John, make a request and the ways they approach Jesus, these two different people, reveal their selfish desires. With the rich man, we'll see that his selfish desire is rooted in treasuring things over Jesus. He's most concerned with keeping his treasure. And then with James and John, we'll see how their selfish desire is rooted in wanting glory and status. Then finally, we will see how Jesus is our one solution to selfishness. So first, let's look at the rich man. and Let's look at what he's really treasuring in that question. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich man asked this question, expecting Jesus to validate him. We see this in the rich man's claim that he has kept all God's commandments since his youth. The rich man expects Jesus to validate him, but instead, Jesus actually exposes this man's selfishness. The rich man claims he's done all the right things, but Jesus knows the man's heart. After asking an an initial question of the man's question, Jesus eventually tells the man, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, I think we would agree Jesus is asking a lot of this man. To be clear, Jesus isn't saying that everyone who wants to follow Jesus and have eternal life must give up everything they own. But Jesus is particularly getting at what this man was treasuring more than Jesus. The rich man was unable to loosen his selfish grasp on his possessions. So I think it's actually a helpful question for all of us to ask, what might we be treasuring more than Jesus? What might you be treasuring more than Jesus? Some other helpful questions to get to that, if we're not sure, might be, what, what, what might we be unwilling to let go of? Or what do you feel entitled to? Now, it might be your material possessions, like the rich man. It might be your academics. Or it might be your plans for your life. It might even be your sleep or your me time. This has been true for me. It's been true for Sarah. And I'd love to give her a chance to share a little bit about her own story with selfishness. Yeah, it feels very obvious to call the rich man selfish and judge him. It feels very obvious to say, come on, bro, like get it together. Or at least don't be so obvious about loving stuff. Try to not be so transparent. But we do the same thing. We all have things that we treasure more than anything else. And for me, my treasure is my me time. I am a parent now, and I was not prepared. I don't think you can ever be. They tell you it's hard, but becoming it is something different. And 
tending to the needs of a child, especially a newborn, is intense. It means tending to another person's needs 24-7. My comfort zone is metaphorically and literally infringed upon in many ways. And this person is tiny and completely helpless. When he's hungry, I need to feed him, even if it's an inconvenient time. If he needs a diaper change right when I want to take that first sip of coffee, that coffee has to wait. And it has surprised me how much I can go through the outward motions of selflessness while inside my heart is raging in anger and impatience. On the outside, it can look like I'm meeting his needs, I'm doing the things, much like the way I'm sure this rich man looked upstanding on the outside, looked like he was doing good things. And yet on the inside, my heart reveals something totally different. And when I pursue comfort as my treasure, just a little more me time, it actually leads me to resenting my son as an imposition on my comfort. Rather than seeing him as a beautiful human being made in the image of God with dignity and worth and having his own desires and interests, I just see him as an imposition on my comfort. And that is the tricky thing about your treasure because treasure often in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Like think of the rich man's stuff. is not necessarily bad. Me time is not necessarily bad. We all need time where we can step away and recharge. Friends, not necessarily bad. Getting good grades, not bad. But when they become our treasure and we long for them and we seek them and we hoard them, more is never going to be enough. And the pursuit of mine actually robs the joy of spending time with and raising my son. My selfishness sours a good thing. It is not his fault. He's a baby. Babies going to be babies. That's just what they are. But my selfishness sours a good thing. And so we can see that, that our, our treasure can, can look like it's going to deliver joy, but it does not. And so when we see this rich man, and we wonder, what is our own treasure? Here's a good question to ask. How do I respond when I don't get what I want? Or when something I like is taken away and I start to lose it, there's a good chance that that's your treasure. So we see that that the first selfish desire is a desire to hold on to our treasure and to treasure it more than Jesus. But we also see our second desire is to have life on our own terms. So Carolyn is going to come up and talk to us about how James and John want life on their own terms. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Sarah. That James and John, as we see in the passage, want life on their own terms how they selfishly treasure this status and glory as they want life on their own terms. What an awkward conversation they have with Jesus, right? Did we see this? Uh, When we hear James and John speak in this passage, Jesus has just predicted for a third time now in the gospel of Mark, his horrific death and suffering on the cross. But James and John decide this is the key moment to start strolling up, making demands, Teacher, they say in verse 35, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That's pretty bold. (laughs) And then in verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John are seeking glory. They want to sit beside Jesus in his coming kingdom. 
While the rich man selfishly clung to his possessions as his treasure, James and John are selfishly striving after status. And they're not completely wrong to seek glory from Jesus. Jesus will bring a kingdom and he will receive glory and power and honor. But James and John want glory and power and honor on their own terms. And friends, I have been just like James and John. I strive after people's love and approval, believing that it can bring me the status, glory, position, relationships that I am looking for. I think it's going to bring me everlasting joy, but it actually robs me of joy because I forget that everlasting joy comes from loving and following Jesus. When I try and get relationships on my own terms, it's I'm acting like they're in need and I can make demands about my needs. I'm act, I demand that they happen on my own terms, just like I did back in 2020 with my team. So what did it look like for me to selfishly demand that relationships happen on my own terms? Well, in 2020, I had recently moved to a new area and started working with a great team, my Disciple Maker staff team, whom I love and praise God for. But when I first moved, I didn't realize that I had expectations about how much time I would spend with my team at work, outside of work. But I did. I did have expectations. And I was lonely during that season. And I wanted more time with my teammates than I felt like I was getting. So my teammates hadn't done anything wrong, but I felt entitled to more time with them. I want to be clear. This was a me issue. I was selfish. I wanted my world to go my way. And over the winter break, I tried to get what I wanted by initiating and making plans for things my team and I could do together. But when bad weather, COVID, and other unforeseen circumstances got in the way, I was angry. And you know what I did? I started making jokes. I started making passive-aggressive comments and complaints like, oh, nothing I plan ever pans out. Or guess we'll have to reschedule again relatable, right? Rather than admitting how I said I was, I used humor to cover how I was feeling. But then a friend lovingly took me aside and shared her observations with me. It seems like you bring this up a lot. And she was right, of course. And her observation made me ask the question, why? Why did I bring this up so often? And as I considered why I was so upset about these plans not going as I expected, I found that although I said I was planning these events for the team, I had been seeking to serve myself more than my team. And then when I joked or complained about things not going my way, I was really grumbling against God, saying that I was angry at him for holding out on me because he was getting in the way of what I wanted and my own selfish desires. So earlier we saw the rich man love something so much that he was unwilling to let it go because it had become his treasure. In the same way, friends, and we love something so much that we demand it on our own terms, that is evidence it has become our treasure. James and John wanted status and glory on their own terms. And when they ask this question, make this request of Jesus, they reveal how they are treating Jesus not as a treasure of their hearts, not as a treasure of their hearts, but as a means to an end. Because James and John are used to particular systems of authority, and they're expecting that Jesus can deliver 
them glory and success the way it works in their world on their terms. Okay, how does glory work in their world? Where Jesus actually helps us understand this in verse 42. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Gentiles were any non-Jewish people during that time. And James and John expect that rulers and great ones get to wield their prestige, their power and privilege over others, just like the Gentile rulers in their world do. But in verse 34, Jesus says, but as he contrasts the Gentile rulers in the world with those in his kingdom, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus promising true greatness in his kingdom, but it's not going to come from James and John demanding status and glory on their own terms. Instead, Jesus says, whoever will be great among you must be last of all, must take the place of a servant. That is really shocking. It is not what we expect. It's not the terms they were thinking. They would bring them joy, but actually... Jesus helping them see your way, it's going to rob you of joy. Putting yourself first is not going to deliver the joy you think it will. To be first, you must become last. So I got angry with God when relationships didn't go my way because I saw God as a means to my ideal ends. When I put myself first, I was angry, not joyful. And I would be stuck in a cycle of treasuring the wrong things, having them disappoint me, and growing angry and resentful if not for Jesus. The one solution to selfishness. Jesus, our one solution to selfishness. Let's go now to our second point there, the one solution to selfishness. Jesus is our model of true selflessness and the only means by which we can turn from selfishness. He's our model and our means because he selflessly laid down his life for us. That is true selflessness, laying down your life for another. Let's look back now at Mark 10, 45. It's the final verse on your packet there. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, what will this look like? Now, that section from verses 32 through 34 are very important as Jesus helps us see what it will look like to give his life as a ransom for many. So starting in verse 33, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What awaits Jesus in Jerusalem? The verbs in this passage are chilling. He will be delivered over. He will be condemned. He will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. As Jesus foretells his crucifixion and his resurrection, we see the lengths that he will go to to lay down his life to save people, including selfish people like James and John, like me and you. His life will be a ransom for many. 
a ransom is a demand for a payment and Jesus will pay the highest cost at his own life. Pause with me for a moment. We should be in awe of this. We should be in awe of Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world with the power of God, but he didn't put himself first. He didn't demand that people serve him like I so often do. He served others even at the highest cost. In this way, Jesus is our model of perfect selflessness. And as we look to Jesus and how he poured out his great love for us on the cross, he is not only our model of selflessness, but also our means of turning from our selfish ways to follow him. He is our means of selflessness. We see that when we are in awe of Jesus' selfless love for us, it actually changes everything. We'll want to accept that love. We'll want to receive his love. We'll want to turn to Jesus instead of turning to lesser things. Only when we are captivated by a superior love can we ever put aside our love of self. Only when our hearts are captivated by a creator can we ever humbly admit that we are just creatures. Only when, our, when we see how Jesus gave up the treasure of heaven for us will we be able to give up the treasure in our hearts for him. Friends, Jesus gave up his treasure so that you can give up your treasure. As we turn to Jesus, we're able to turn from the sin of selfishness and live in the joy of loving him and being loved by him for eternity. Jesus is not only our means of turning from selfishness, though. He is also our means of living counterculturally selfless lives, of changing from selfish to selfless. How is this the case? He is our means of living selflessly because he, the truly selfless one, died and rose again on the third day. Catch that in verse 34. And after three days, he will rise. He gives us a glimpse of what he's going to do in each of us. He will put our sin of selfishness to death when he died. He did that. He put it to death, but he rose again from the dead so that we too will be resurrected to new life. If you're in Christ, you're living a new life. And you can change from your selfish habits of the past because he is working in you, resurrecting every part of you. He will resurrect our desires, replacing our selfishness with a desire and a love for people and a desire to serve them. Jesus loves people. So as we love him and our hearts are captivated by him, we're going to learn to love what he loves people, even when they are messy and difficult and hard to love. As Sarah and I have shared Becoming a Christian doesn't immediately mean we arrive at selflessly loving other people. It's still really hard because it's going to cost us our, our time, our comfort, our money. Serving others will still get in the way of our plans for our lives. But what is impossible with God becomes, without God becomes possible with him. It is possible by God's grace to love others because he has first loved now, Sarah will help us see what it can look like from us to change from selfish to selfless and really apply this as we go home. When we think about changing from selfish to selfless, I think a good question to ask first is why? Like, who cares? What's the point? Why does it matter that God's people live selflessly? Jesus actually tells us why in our passage. Look at verse 42 and 43. You know 
that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus says in the pagan first century that the Gentiles, that the people out there, the rulers out in the world, are the ones who lord authority over others, who chase power above all else, who put themselves first so that they can rule over other people. So that is what life was like in the pagan first century. That also sounds a lot like what life is like in the pagan 21st century. Think about the headlines that you have read recently in the last few months. On the world stage, we see power-hungry rulers conquering lands, running over innocent people to do it. On a smaller scale, we see local leaders concerned more about their own prestige or even abusing their authority than caring for the people that they're supposed to be leading. We see justice not being upheld for all, but there being double standards in our justice systems. We see that selfishness and putting ourselves first really is the root of much, if not all, sin. And why do I say that? Because when every single person puts, wants life on their own terms, and puts themselves first to do it, chaos, harm, abuse, and neglect abound. Sin abounds. And Christ would have us live differently because Christ is a different king than any other world leader. Because what king sacrifices himself so that others could live? What ruler gives up power for the good of others? Jesus is jarringly different, and he would have us live that way to show the world that he is different. This is what Elliot Clark was talking about yesterday, that a holy and godly life stands out. So as we consider changing from selfish to selfless, we want to consider two things, the attitude of selflessness and the action of selflessness. And to do that, I want you to look at the verse at the top of your outline from Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So you see when he says, have this mindset among yourselves, this is the attitude. Have this attitude that Christ even though he was God himself, did not lord that over others, that he took the form of a servant, that he had this attitude of selflessness, of putting, of considering others above him. And now let's be clear. Selflessness, this humble attitude, this is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I'm going to say that again because it's kind of a tongue twister. You want to write it down. Maybe you get it on the way home. Not thinking less of yourself, like low self-esteem, but just thinking of yourself less. Because we've talked about all week how your salvation is secure if you are in Jesus. How the God of the universe himself knows you by name and cares for you and has called you yours. He is guarding your inheritance even as you suffer. 
And so you have the freedom to not have to scrape and pull together and look out for number one and provide for yourself. You actually have the freedom in your security in Christ to consider others, to look out for others. So as you gauge your attitude of selflessness, here's two questions to help you gauge it. Number one, how do you react when other people's needs interrupt your schedule? Here's the second question. As you look to the interests of others, do you know the interests of others? (laughs) Like I want you to think about two or three people close to you, family, friends, coworkers, Do you actually know what they need right now? And could you write it down? I am often so wrapped up in the next thing I have to do and the next thing I need to be at that I don't even realize, what does my husband need right now? What what does my kid need right now? I just, I'm thinking about what I have to do. So the attitude of selflessness is to even know the needs of others. And here are some, some categories Uh, to think about if you're not exactly sure. Here's some categories of selfishness, areas of life. Our schedule, you can write these down, consider later which one you fall into, how you use your time, our finances, how you're using your money, or the financial needs of others around us, your schoolwork, relationships, roommates, family, dating. These are all categories of life where you can consider the needs of others and have the attitude of selflessness. So what's the action of selflessness? Well, it's actually doing it. Shocker. <laughs> it's not just knowing the needs of others, but actually putting them others, putting them ahead of yourself. So you can ask yourself in those areas of life that we've just written down, have you put the needs of others above your own? As we are wrapping up, it's good to to consider what is my treasure? What do you treasure so much that you're afraid of losing? And in what areas of life do you want life on your own terms? Friends, whatever that is for you, whatever you wrote down on the paper, those will be key areas for you where you can start to apply changing from selfish to selfless, to consider Jesus as the model of selflessness, the means of selflessness, to consider how did Jesus use his time or his finances or his relationships and how can I do the same? Because putting others first is completely countercultural because it reveals that you are living for something other than yourself. It shows that there is something at work in you 
that is not of you. Because none of us will choose selflessness on our own. Or maybe we will for like five minutes. But it will not last. But when you see someone consistently living selflessly, putting the needs of others above their own, you wonder why are they doing that? If everything in the world is look out for number one. And that will give you an opportunity, an open door to speak the words of the gospel. This is what Elliot Clark was talking about yesterday, how a godly and holy life will give you the stage to speak the words of the gospel. Because Jesus is a selfless God. What is the gospel? Here's a great verse. God so loved the world that he was willing to give his only son so that whoever believes in him could have eternal life. God the Father is a selfless God. He gave his son. Jesus is selfless as God. He gave himself. So when we follow him and act selflessly, we show the world evidence of the gospel at work. Because we are not selfless to earn God's favor or to please other people. We choose selflessness because a selfless God saved us first. And this is how we demonstrate to others what that looks like. So I want to get really practical as we close. We are going to do a selflessness challenge because here at Focus, you might not feel the pang of being in exile so keenly because we're around other people that are pursuing the Lord, loving the Lord. It might be hard to feel like an exile here or harder, but when you go home next week to your jobs, and some of your families who are not believers, it will be painfully obvious to some that you are in exile. And in that moment, you will be tempted to fall back into living for the world. Look out for number one. But I want to challenge you not to do that, to remember what you've learned this week, to remember what the Lord has done with you, and to be selfless. So here is our selflessness challenge. I want you to think about somebody that you're going to interact with next week when you go home and write down a selfless thing that you can do for them. I'm going to give you a minute to consider and write it down and commit to actually going and doing that thing. Jesus, I thank you that you are a selfless God. Were it not for your selflessness, none of us would be here. So I thank you um, for that, that you have laid down your life for others. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this room feeling free not to have to scrape and, and push and desperately gather things for ourselves, hold on to our treasure, demand life on our own terms, but realize that you have given us everything in Christ and that it is secure and kept in heaven for us. And Lord, I pray that that would um, move our hearts, move us outward, uh, and that as we consider this selflessness challenge, that we would commit to it, that by faith, you would change us in, in this, these areas of life. Um, I pray these things in your name. Amen.